would, take your Bibles and turn with me to Zechariah chapter 12. You might have to listen carefully by the end of this message. I don't know how long my voice is going to last. Zechariah chapter 12. We'll look at verse 10 all the way to verse, uh, chapter 13, verse 1. Let me uh, pray uh, for us before we read. Father, you are a good and merciful Father. Father of all grace and glory. And uh, we will see a picture of your grace today in this passage. And I pray that it would arrest our hearts and cause us to adore our Lord and Savior, Jesus, all the more. And use this text to help us come to you that we might find cleansing and forgiveness for our sins every day. And then speak that same word to others. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's start in uh, verse 10 of chapter 12. Hear the word of the Lord. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. So that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. On that day, the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning for Hadad Ramon in the place of Megiddo. The land shall mourn, each family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, and their wives by themselves. The family of the house of Nathan by itself and their wives by themselves. The family of the house of Levi by itself and and their wives by themselves. The family of the Shimeites by itself and their wives by themselves. And all the families that are left, each by itself and their wives by themselves. On that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem... To cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. So here's what I want to do this morning. I want us to take four uh, big steps toward understanding the message of this passage. And the first big step is this. I want to correct a shortcoming in the message that I preached last week. Uh, We covered verses 1 to 9 last Sunday, and and the major emphasis of my sermon was that the final battle of verses 1 to 9 refers only to the return of Jesus Christ. But several observations from Scripture I have persuaded me to to clarify that the battle is actually fought and won through two comings of Jesus and not just the final coming. And one of those observations came with how the New Testament writers use Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2 is another place in the Old Testament where we get a picture of the nations gathering against God and His anointed one. Uh, and, and, and by the end of Psalm 2, 
Jesus goes to battle and he smashes the nations with a rod of iron. But here's the interesting part. The apostles quote Psalm 2 and the gathering of the nations against God, both at the cross and at Jesus' return. Okay, so Acts chapter 4, for example, quotes Psalm 2 to say that the nations gathered against God and His Messiah at the cross of Jesus Christ to do to Jesus whatever God's hand and plan had predestined to take place. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5, quotes from Psalm 2, verse 7 to speak about Jesus' resurrection. So right there, we have the apostles saying that Psalm 2 applies both to the cross and the resurrection. But then Revelation 19, verses 15 to 19, also uses Psalm 2 to speak about Jesus' final return when the nations will once again gather against God for battle and Christ then defeats them with his people. So it appears that the apostles saw the victory of God and his Messiah against the nations unfolding in two comings, not just one. And something else that grabbed my attention is the bigger picture that Zechariah painted for us in uh, verses 1 to 9 last week. Um, I want you to picture it again with me briefly. Um, what we saw last week. <clears throat> A day when nations gather against God in vain. A day when God pours out his wrath on the nations. A day when God acts decisively to save his own covenant people. A day when God makes even the feeblest of his people glorious and mighty, especially because of their union with the house of David. And a day when God's people will be reestablished at Jerusalem. According to the apostles, this is exactly what was inaugurated at the cross of Jesus Christ. The nations did gather against God in his son. That's what we looked at in Acts 4 just a moment ago. God did pour out his wrath on the nations. He just did it the first time in Jesus' bloody body hanging on the cross. And through the death of Jesus, God also acted decisively to save his own covenant people. And then through Jesus' resurrection, God made his people glorious and mighty for the spiritual battle that they would face against the nations. That's Ephesians 6 and Colossians 2. And he established them as the heavenly Jerusalem that can never be shaken, which Matthew 16, Galatians 4, and Hebrews 12 tells us is the church of Jesus Christ. So even if the final battle isn't over, even if the nations will once again gather against God and his people, the victory for God's people has already begun through the cross and resurrection. And then one more thing is this, and this one is straight from our passage today. I want you to notice the repetition of the phrase on that day. It's repeated six times in verses 1 to 9. And we noted last week that it functions like a code word uh, pointing to God's end time 
salvation. But notice this in particular, it doesn't stop with verse 9. It carries over to the events described in the rest of the passage, and it even gets repeated again in chapter 12, verse 11. On that day, the morning in Jerusalem, and then chapter 13, verse 1, on that day there should be a fountain, which means that the events of verses 1 to 9 and the events of verses 10 and following are all included within the time frame of on that day. Okay, so interestingly enough, the Apostle John uses Zechariah 12.10 in uh, his Gospel and the book of Revelation. We'll look a little bit about, at that later on to talk about Jesus' cross and Jesus' return. But I mention it now to help you see the shortcoming of my message last week. The final battle is actually fought and won through two of Jesus' comings and not just one, which means it looks more like this, if you look on the screen, this final battle and salvation happens in the coming of Jesus once at the cross and the return. And the on that day is pretty thick. It has thickness to it that covers cross, Jesus' present reign, all the way to, to Jesus' return. Which, I don't know if you guys caught it last week, but uh, Dale actually began the Lord's Supper that way that Jesus had gone to battle for us at the cross. That's why you got to love a plurality of elders, right? One elder picks up where the other is slacking. So that's big step number one, and I think it will give us a, even a, a, a better framework for understanding today's passage as well. Big step number two. We need to walk through these verses together. And we might break them down into three headings. The piercing, the mourning, and the cleansing. The piercing, the mourning, and the cleansing. Let's look at the piercing first. Everything in this passage revolves around the piercing of a unique individual in verse 10. And the way the ESV translates verse 10 indicates that this individual is very close to God. He says, I will pour out a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him. So he seems to be a representative so that to look on God or me is simultaneously to look on him. And we could think of other places in the Old Testament where a representative who is close to God gets pierced. Uh, we might think of the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. I mean, he represents God. And verse 5 of Isaiah 53 says that he gets pierced for our transgressions. We might also think of David in Psalm 22, verse 16. David represents God and says, They have pierced my hands and feet. But Zechariah 12.10 is actually going further in its claim. In our study of Zechariah, we, we've seen this back and forth between God coming to save his people and his king coming to save his people. And sometimes you can't even distinguish between the two. Both the king and Yahweh bring salvation. Both establish peace. Both possess universal dominion. Both 
receive worship by the end of Zechariah chapter 14. So are they one and the same? Or are they distinct? Is the, is the tension you, you, you feel as you read through Zechariah? Well, building on that tension, <clears throat> or better, bringing that tension together in one person, comes Zechariah 12, verse 10. And I want you to listen to the way the New American Standard Version translates it. Uh, you can see it on the screen. It says... I will pour out the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced. Me is Yahweh. They will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him. The, the emphasis there is that God himself is the one pierced and not merely his representative. It brings out the uniqueness of the radical offense of Zechariah's prophecy, how could the immortal God dare say of himself that he would be pierced? And that's exactly how it landed on early Jewish interpreters of the Old Testament. And they try to alleviate God from, his, from this piercing, even in changing the way the Bible reads sometimes in their translations. They never have a problem with God's representative getting pierced in Isaiah 53. Or they never have a problem with God's representative getting pierced in Psalm 22. They got a really big problems when it comes to Zechariah 12.10. Because they know what it's saying and they don't have a theological category for it. It's a total mystery to them. How could God say such a thing about himself? Unless you embrace Zechariah's tension between God and his king, mysterious though it may be, and then find its ultimate fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. Okay, that's the way the Apostle John understands the tension in Zechariah to find its relief. The mystery is answered in the person of Jesus Christ, who is not just a representative of God, though he is certainly that too, Jesus Christ is also God in the flesh. John 1 says that he forever existed with God and was God, and then he took to himself a human nature. He took on flesh. That's what Christians mean when they talk about the incarnation. God himself took on flesh in the person of Jesus, and by taking on flesh, he made himself killable, pierceable. And when John sees this, about Jesus. And when John hears Jesus saying this about himself, he's able to connect the dots as he's reading the Old Testament. He's able to connect the dots when Jesus gets pierced on the cross. John 19, verse 37, says that when the soldier pierced Jesus with his spear, it fulfilled the prophecy of Zechariah 12.10. They will look upon him whom they have pierced. So this is how God is pierced. Now just to be careful, when we say that God is pierced, or as we sung earlier, um, that thou, my God, should die for me, we're not saying that God in his very essence was pierced or had died. We're saying that God the Son in his humanity suffered and died for us. 
But since his divine and his human nature can never be divided, then it's in some sense appropriate to speak of our God being crucified for us. Or as Acts 20 verse 28 puts it, that God obtained the church with his own blood. It is God's blood that was spilled for us. It was God as he is in the Son who was pierced for us. So this prophecy looks to a day when God would be pierced and it finds its fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. But two further things surround, uh, there are two further things surrounding this, this piercing that, that come to light next. One of them is mourning. Mourning, not morning versus evening, but mourning as an expression of sorrow. You can see in verse 10, it's the covenant people themselves. They have pierced God. He calls them the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Uh, they look on what they've done in piercing God and they mourn over him as one mourns for an only child or as one weeps over a firstborn. Uh, these two images of an, of an only child and, and a firstborn. We might think of Abraham and Isaac. Uh, Isaac is Abraham's only child in whom all the promises of God, they, they were bound up in him. And to lose Isaac was, was to lose everything. Or we might think of when God kills the firstborn in Egypt to rescue Israel, his firstborn, out of Egypt. There was a great cry over the death of the firstborn that goes up. This is no light-hearted mourning, but one of deep sorrow over what they've done. And then as you keep reading in verses 11 to 14, the mourning spreads throughout the covenant people. Verse 11 says, On that day, the mourning in Jerusalem, so now that the whole city is in view, the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning for Hadad Ramon in the place, in the plain of Megiddo. Uh, Hadad Ramon is tricky because it's not mentioned anywhere else in the Old Testament. Uh, but we do find several regions called Ramon uh, Joshua 15, Judges 20. Uh, one of them even comes in Zechariah 14, verse 10, and speaks of it as a region just south of Jerusalem. So we're dealing with a region here. But also, if we go back in our Bibles uh, to 2 Kings chapter 23, verse 29, we find that one of the significant kings in David's line, King Josiah, he gets killed at Megiddo. And it's interesting because when you read the same account in 2 Chronicles 35, it tells us that all of Israel lamented Josiah's death for decades and decades. They even made it a, uh, uh, they made this lament over, over Josiah's death a regular custom in Israel. Well, Zechariah is picking up on, on this and, and saying, look, there's coming a day when you will mourn for the piercing of God like you mourned over King Josiah. And this may be a subtle way of saying that the pierced God will also be a king in David's line. Which we also know is true of Jesus Christ. He is not only God in the flesh, he is a son of David. So the mourning then spreads even further to the whole land. He mentions first the royal line by mentioning David and, and one of his sons, Nathan. 
in verse 12. Uh, then he adds the priestly line. If you want to check that on uh, Nathan, you can see his name actually come up in Luke's gospel, Luke chapter, chapter 3, verse 31. Dealing with the the kingly line there, but then the priestly line in Israel with Levi and part of his lineage, uh, the Shimeites in verse 13. So both royal and priestly lines are together mourning over what they've done. These are the leaders in Israel. And then verse 14 sweeps everybody else into the picture. And all the families that are left, each by itself and their wives, by themselves. So this is a a mourning that is spreading throughout the covenant people. And if you wonder why there's this uh, repetition first of the house and then their wives by themselves, their wives by themselves, their wives. It it comes from Jeremiah 44 verse 9, but the circumstances are much different there. 44 verses 9 and 10, at that point Israel had been exiled to Egypt. You know, God's punishing them. He sends them into Egypt. What do they do? They go ahead and they just worship the idols of the Egyptians instead of repenting and turning to the Lord. And so God comes to them and says, hey, have, have you forgotten the evil of your fathers? The evil of the kings of Judah? The evil of their wives? Your own evil and the evil of your wives? You get this Repetition of the evil of your wives. They haven't humbled themselves. Well, now what we're getting in Zechariah is a reversal of that state of being in Israel, in God's covenant people. You know, here we see a people humbled before God who are mourning over what they've done to him. And notice nobody's pointing the finger at the other. Everybody is on their faces to confess their own sins. What changed them? What, what brought about this change? What brought them to this place of repentance and sorrow over sin? The answer is back in verse 10. The grace of God. I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. The grace of God in the piercing and the grace of God in the pouring out of his spirit so that his people see the piercing for what it truly is, their salvation. This is what causes the mourning. Last week, we saw that God promised to conquer all of the rebel forces that were surrounding his people. What do you see here that's different? We see that God is not just concerned with the rebel outside of us. He is concerned with the rebel inside of us. Sure, he's a God that conquers the pride without, but he also conquers the pride within his covenant people. And how does he do it? By pouring out the spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. And I wish I had time to read through all the passages where this idea of pleas for mercy in Hebrew occurs. Um, 
This is a plea that rises to God such that if he did not act to save you, then your soul would perish in Sheol. Uh, That's Psalm 28. Or if he did not act to save you, then you would be cut off from God's sight. The snares of death would swallow you whole. It's uh, Psalm, one, Psalm 31 and Psalm 116. The wrath of God would consume you all together. That's Psalm 143. Each of these are examples where this idea occurs in the Psalms. Uh, Psalm 130, which you sang earlier, um, is probably one of the best examples. Uh, Psalm 130, verses 1 to 4, David says, O Lord, Hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. Same word that Zechariah uses. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. So you see the situation in Psalm 30, 130. you have no chance of standing before God in your sin unless he acts to forgive you. And so your cry goes up, Lord, save me from, from this state. That's the kind of cry that God's grace inspires in his people. It's the cry that comes with the outpouring of God's spirit upon you. The spirit opens your eyes to see what your sins have caused, the death of God's only son, and you weep and you cry out for his forgiveness. Isn't this what you feel over your sins as a child of God? Some of you think that something is wrong when you're grieved over your sins. But friends, grief over your sins is a gift from above. It is a gift of God's grace. We should turn our grief over sin into thanksgiving that God poured out his spirit of grace on us. I mean, had he not done so, we would stay blind to it. We would stay dim. We wouldn't care. So turn your times of grief into occasions of thanksgiving and more cries for mercy. And you know why you should cry to God for mercy? Because he is the one that opens the fountain of cleansing to you. So what chapter 13 verse 1 says, See, these, these all hang together as one piece. On that day there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. This is these expressions uh, from sin and uncleanness or for sin and for uncleanness. Uh, they appear in context in the Old Testament, especially Leviticus 4 and Ezekiel 43, um, where an animal is sacrificed as a sin offering for the purpose of atonement or cleansing. Um, you know, we are sinners. Sin separates us from God. And we need a sacrifice, a substitute to to cleanse us from that sin in order to have fellowship with God. Our sacrifice for cleansing comes through the piercing of God back in verse 10. And the cleansing is then given to the people who are mourning. And this cleansing isn't just, you you know, mom's 
sometimes do the whole thing with their thumb after dinner, wipe a little food off, off the face there. And this is not just a little dab with a cloth. Right? It comes to us as a fountain, which is the same word that Jeremiah uses repeatedly to talk about God himself, the fountain of living water. This is an inexhaustible supply of cleansing for you. Barry Webb puts it this way, no sin will be too heinous and no stain too stubborn for this fountain to deal with. Again, God is not merely interested in rescuing us from external problems. He's interested in rescuing us us from our internal moral problem called sin. This is the kind of God we worship and we serve. He pours out grace on those who pierce him. He takes those who are guilty for piercing him, and when they look on him and cry for mercy, he cleanses them from their sin and their uncleanness. Talk about a blessing of your enemies. Talk about bringing out and fleshing out what Romans 5 tells us, that while we were still enemies, Christ died for us. We see it right here in Zechariah. It is the pierced God who looks upon these people and opens a fountain of cleansing for them. And this is exactly how John, in his gospel, presents the death of Jesus. Uh, when Jesus is pierced with the soldier's spear, John witnesses a flow of blood. You might remember this a flow of blood and water from Jesus' side. He's not saying that to emphasize that Jesus is really, really dead. He already told you he was dead earlier in the chapter. He's meaning something more. He mentions the blood and water flowing from Jesus' side so that we interpret those events in light of this fountain. This is the fountain that God opens up. And blood in John's gospel is regularly used to talk about the thing that takes away our sins and makes us right with God. And water in John's gospel is regularly used of the Holy Spirit. What is this fountain? It's the fountain of the Holy Spirit who takes the blood of Jesus and applies it to God's people so that they are cleansed. You remember the plea for mercy we looked at earlier. There's another one I want to show you in Jeremiah 31. And there we actually get an example of what a plea for mercy looks like. In addition to the ones I mentioned before in the Psalms. um, Jeremiah 31, verse 9. If you want to look at it with me. Jeremiah 31, you know that chapter, a big chapter on the New Covenant. Uh, Jeremiah 31, verse 9, uh, says that with weeping they shall come, and with pleas for mercy I will lead them back, right? Well, then we actually get an example in Ephraim of a plea for mercy. If you look with me at verse 18, he says, I have heard Ephraim grieving. You have disciplined me. So this is, the, this is the, what Ephraim's saying. You have disciplined me and I was disciplined like an untrained calf. Bring me back that I may be restored for you are the Lord my God. For, I have had, for after I had turned away, I relented. And after I was instructed, I struck my thigh. This is a, a, an imagery of uh, repentance here. 
I was ashamed and I was confounded because I bore the disgrace of my youth. Many of you are in that place this morning with Ephraim. Ashamed over a harsh word. You might have spoken this week to your wife. Ashamed over your laziness. Ashamed over the way you keep falling into some of the same sins. Ashamed that you're still enticed by things you you wish you weren't enticed by anymore. Listen to how God responds to Ephraim in verse 20. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he my darling child? For as often as I speak against him, I do remember him still. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. God responds the same way to you when you are united to Jesus Christ, his son. All who are in Christ by faith can say of you, dear son, dear darling child, I remember you. My heart yearns for you. I will surely have mercy on you. This is the grace of our God in Christ. This is the mercy of our Father. Look upon Him and cry to Him. The people who experience God's grace, that's what they're doing here. They're looking upon Jesus and crying out for mercy. That's what John's gospel encourages us to do as well. Everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. John 6, 40. He even gives us an illustration of it in John chapter 3. It's just like Jesus is just like the serpent that God raised up on the pole. You look to Jesus, He saves you. You you can't look around for anything else to save, for something to save you. You've got to look to Him. Everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. Life. What does it mean to look on him? Well, looking in John's gospel is a, is a metaphor for faith. It's seeing, it's seeing with the eyes of your heart that there's no one else who can save you but Jesus, the pierced one. We might say that it's, it's a transformative contemplation that produces less and less self-reliance and more and more dependence on God and the way He has chosen to save through Christ. It's a transformative contemplation that produces less and less self-reliance and more and more Christward dependence. It contemplates, who is this bleeding one? It turns over the death of Jesus according to the scriptures and takes what the scriptures say about his death and it applies it to everything in life. What has this bleeding one achieved for me? You contemplate who Jesus is and what he's done and the Spirit uses the contemplation of that reality to convict you and save you and transform you and increase your dependence on and your love for Jesus. Step number three. Please look upon the pierced God now by faith so that you don't have to look upon him later with dread 
I've told you already that John quotes Zechariah 12.10 at the cross in John 19.37. He also uses Zechariah 12.10 to speak about Jesus' return in Revelation 1.7, which says this, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. This is different than the mourning we see in Zechariah 12. The mourning in Revelation 1-7 is not one of, of heartfelt contrition and brokenness over sin. Rather, it reflects the weeping and the wailing of the unbelieving nations who have spurned the Son of God. They've got nothing to shield them from the wrath of Jesus who comes with the clouds of heaven. And again, just like we looked at Psalm 2 earlier in the sermon, this is what John is doing with Zechariah 12.10. He is interpreting Zechariah 12.10 in light of two comings. The first in humility, the first of Jesus in humility, and the second in glory. And he is teasing out the implications here for the people. And by doing so, he makes an incredible point. If you want to experience cleansing from sin, if you want to be a part of God's covenant people, then you must not wait to look upon Jesus at his return. You must look upon Jesus now. If we look now, we will be saved. If we wait, we will perish. If we mourn now, our mourning will be turned into joy at Jesus' coming. But if we coddle our sin and grow content With ungodliness, we will experience great dread at Jesus' return. This was the message the apostles preached in the book of Acts. In fact, Acts is a great example of the outpouring of God's Spirit, bringing uh, brokenness over sin as they look upon the pierced one who's being held up through the preaching of the gospel. Jesus was pierced, the Spirit was poured out, and what happens to the people as Peter is preaching, Acts 2.37, they were cut to the heart and said, what shall we do? And Peter's response wasn't, oh, just wait, you got some time. I mean, it's coming like 2,000 years later, but, you know, just, just wait. No, that's not what he says. He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The day of salvation is now. The spirit of grace has been poured out. So look upon Jesus and be saved. Some of you perhaps have never looked upon Jesus this way before. You have not understood that he in fact is God in the flesh. You haven't understood that his sacrifice cleanses you from sin. Perhaps you didn't even know that God was this gracious to sinful people when they cry out for mercy. Or perhaps you've known all those things and you can articulate the sound doctrine of the church, but never have you looked in a transformative way upon Jesus. Please do not leave today without crying to God for mercy. Jesus was pierced by a spear in his first coming so that you wouldn't be pierced by God's sword in his second coming. Come to him this morning. And come to him every 
day of your life. If you find yourself coming to him for the first time this morning, grab a member of this church. They'd be delighted to talk with you and pray with you before you leave. Don't fear stopping one of them to discuss our gracious God and what he's done in Christ. Finally, step number four. There are several specific things that I want our church to take away from this passage. We, I mean, this is rich, a rich passage. We could take a number of things away, but I just want to mention, um, I don't know how many I wrote down, four, uh, four things to you very briefly. To begin, looking upon Jesus isn't limited to something you do to get saved. It's not a one-time deal. Looking upon Jesus is something for every day until we see him face to face. Nate Byford sent me a text this week. A text message and uh, last Monday as a way to encourage me and uh, Dustin. And it was a quote from Henry Law uh, in his book, Christ is All. And it goes like this. And man, I wish my voice wasn't like this. So I want to shout it. Um, but he says, Oh, my soul. So he's preaching to himself. Oh, my soul. Christ died is all your hope, your plea, your remedy, your life. Christ died opens your path to God. Christ died turns every frown into approving smiles. When the law thunders and conscience quakes and Satan accuses, interpose, Christ died and fear no more. When the grave opens, whisper, Christ died and sleep in peace. And when the white throne is set, shout, Christ died and take the crown of righteousness. That's good stuff. That's what he's preaching to his soul day in and day out. And I don't know about you, but I need to hear words like that every day. Because every day I am a sinner in need of grace and in need of more grace and cleansing and more assurance and more hope. Look upon the pierced God every day. Sometimes we call this preaching the gospel to yourself. You're holding out truths of the gospel. You're contemplating them so that the Spirit uses them to transform you from within. So make room in your life for transformative contemplation on the death of Jesus for you. What's most important is God and having more of Him. We can only have more of Him if we stop and look and plead course, that's not, that's not something we do alone. God united us with his people so they can help us look upon the pierced one. Okay, that's, that's why you get commands in the New Testament, like from Hebrews 3.13, exhort one another every day as long as it's called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. This is why I come to men's breakfast. It's why I go to care group. It's why I gather with believers and meet with coffee over I need them to speak to me I need them to help me look on Jesus 
It's what Mike did yesterday for us at the men's breakfast. He helped everybody look on Jesus, the perfect. So help each other look to Christ. On Tuesday this week, I was on the verge of my weekly breakdown. Okay? Monday's my day off. Tuesday I break down. Okay? Weekly. So I'm on my weekly breakdown over how much there is to get done and how little time there is to do it. And about lunchtime, 11.53, I get a text from Chris Cronenworth. Hey, bro, are you experiencing God's peace today? No. Remember, nothing you face today is beyond the purview of God's all-sufficient grace and surpassing peace. Read Ephesians 2, 14 to 18. I praise God for Christ, who is our peace and his gracious work on our behalf. That's a good text message. That's, that's a brother helping me look upon Jesus. He's taking the eyes of my heart and pointing them to Jesus. And when I looked at Jesus and I remembered who he was and what God has done for me in Jesus, the weight was lifted, the worry was gone, the contentment began to return. I noted who Jesus was because of my brother's sacrificial effort. I mean, he's a busy guy, works at Lockheed. He took the time to text me. So regardless of how it happens, I mean, this should be the pattern of our life. No, no, use text messages, use phone calls, a Facebook message, a lunch meeting, a care group meeting. May our days be full of helping each other look upon Jesus. It takes work, it takes thinking, it takes creativity and effort, but, he, but Jesus is worth it. And so are your brothers and sisters for whom he spilled his blood. Also, Pray that God pours out his spirit upon us. This isn't every member ministry, right? You could all pray. And brokenness over sin only comes by the gift of God. It's not something we can produce on our own. Uh, it's not something you can fake. Um, you can put on a smile. You can't put on brokenness. We can talk about sin all we want. We can intellectualize it and we can define it precisely and we can explain how it affects our whole being. We, we can even confess it to others when it does happen, but we cannot produce brokenness. We can't create contrition and humility. We, we can't force godly sorrow to, to spread like it, we see it doing here throughout the covenant community. That only comes with a gift of God's gracious spirit. So wives, you should pray this for your husband. Husbands, you should pray this for your children. And show patience when you cannot create it in them. It's only something that God can give. Their hearts are in his hands. Grandpas, you can pray this for all your family members. Older women, you can pray this for, your, for the younger women in this church. Singles, you can pray this outpouring comes 
on us as a people. Pray this for your lost friends and and family members and, and sleep well at night, knowing that only God changes the heart, not you. Everyone can pray for God to pour out His Spirit in this way, to make us sorrowful over sin. That's the only way it's going to come, if He does it. And then finally, take courage and the pierced ones return for you. You know, as we saw from the beginning, God's final victory takes place in in two comings, not just one. Last week's emphasis was on on Jesus' return, the second coming. This week's emphasis was on Jesus' cross, his first coming. And we even saw that in the way that John uses Zechariah 12.10 in his gospel and in the book of Revelation. But Revelation 1.7 shows us that the pierced one will return for us. If he spilt his blood for us, then he will return for us. The lamb will receive the reward of his sufferings. On the third day, God raised Jesus from the dead, and he is now seated in heaven with all power and authority till the day he returns to put all his enemies beneath his feet. When you look upon the pierced one, don't don't see a God-man still in the grave. See the God-man risen, who overcame the grave, and is coming with the clouds of heaven to rescue you and finish the battle in which he's already claimed the victory once and for all.